Welcome back to our series on the book of John. Now, if you recall many months ago when we started this series, we saw that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he did this so he could unveil God, reveal God to the world. And we've been with Jesus over three years of his adult ministry. In the last month and a bit, we've been with Jesus in his last conversation with his disciples. And the last two weeks, we've been with Jesus as he prayed with and prayed for his disciples one last time. And we saw that at the end of a prayer, he prayed that they would launch well, that they would launch with the knowledge of who God is. He prayed for a good trajectory as they went out to minister, as they stuck with Jesus, and that he would protect them with his name. And we, wanted, we saw that he wanted them to land well, land in unity with each other, and also with unity with all the Christians that would follow. Well, tonight, all the ministry is over, all the talking is over, all the praying is over, and we enter into the end game. Jesus will be arrested, and soon after that, be executed. And tonight we see the first part of this endgame roll out. And we'll see that there's a fight for control of what happens. We'll see that some disciples react out of fear. We'll see that some Jewish leaders react to protect their religion. And we'll have a smattering of how the Romans reacted, but we'll see more of that next time. So tonight we'll see control, fear, and religion. The endgame has started. Now, Mark just read a massive passage. I won't have time to walk us through each verse like usual. So let me encourage you, keep one eye on the Bible, one eye on me, and we'll work our way through this together. Now, the first bit is about control, and we see this in verses 1 through to 14. And here we're in the garden, and they're about to be arrested. And it's a question of who is actually in control of this situation. Now, I have three children, and they play chess. Uh, and in particular, my, my six-year-old son is really chess nut. He's, he's crazy. Uh, he wants to play me. He's got an app on his iPad. He, and he, for a long time, he played his older sister, who's eight. But now big sister is like, oh, yeah, I would rather read books and draw. And so she hasn't got time for him anymore. And so poor Theo is like, oh, gee, what do I do now? Wait, I have another sister. Ah, oh, another sister. The other sister's three, by the way. And Elise, he goes, I want to play chess with Elise. Now, at least when I said that they play chess, I'm being very, very generous, especially to Elise. Now, she can set up the pieces, but that's kind of all she can do. She knows maybe one or two moves. But that's no problem for Theo. He just goes to release, okay, I'll do this. Now, you do this. And I do this. And now you do this. And he's been sort of researching um, chess openings. And he's found one, which most of you will know, um, the full mason's quarry. It's mathematically the easiest, fastest way to get checkmate. And you can do it in four moves. So when he plays his three-year-old sister, it's okay, Elise, I do this, and you do this. I do this, you do this. I do this, you do this. I do this, you do this. I've won! And it's like, Theo, that's not winning. That's just, that's just forcing your little sister into to letting you win. But he doesn't care. He loves it. See, he controls the chessboard. He totally dominates his younger sister, and he's so proud of himself. Now, the question here is, at the garden, who is in control of the chessboard? Who is in control of the garden? On first glance, it looks like the Jewish leaders, right? The Jewish leaders had somehow infiltrated Jesus' group of followers and found a traitor. The Jewish leaders had maneuvered them 
into Jesus and his disciples into the garden late at night, away from their fan base, away from their supporters. So now they can do stuff to Jesus, which they couldn't do in broad daylight because the, the, the crowds would, would complain. And these guys came with a contingent of officials and soldiers to capture 11 disciples and Jesus. It looks like they control the chessboard. But if we read this passage slowly, as we've done tonight, and look at some of the details, we'll find that it's not actually the Jewish leaders who are controlling the chessboard. It's actually Jesus who's in total control of a garden. And we'll see this in several places. The first one, when they come to arrest Jesus, they fall before him. You know, remember back a few years ago, many years ago now, when they captured Saddam Hussein. The coalition forces moved in and had to look for him, look for him, look for him. They finally found him hiding in some hole. Is that how these guys found Jesus? Well, no. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, he knew. Knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. That's incredible, isn't it? Grown men falling to the ground. Not only just men, soldiers, trained armed men falling to the ground just because they've been confronted with I am, Jesus, God. This is the phrase that God used to Moses in the Old Testament. What's my name? I am. And he, Jesus, says, I am. And these soldiers are struck by his presence and they fall down. They're not in control. Jesus is in control. They might be the predator and he might be the prey, but when they come face to face with him, he's the one who dominates them, not the other way around. It continues because Jesus says, these things are going to happen the way I said to fulfill my words. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Jesus has prayed last week that God would keep the ones that he'd given him, his disciples, safe. And now Jesus says to these, these soldiers, take me, let them go. And those soldiers actually obeyed him. The disciples would scatter, but they would capture Jesus alone. And why? Because Jesus had just said it, Jesus had just prayed it, and it's coming into fruition. They're not in control. Jesus is in total control. And not only that, the next thing that happens is Peter whips out a sword, and he chops off the ear of one of the servants. And Jesus says, put it away. I'm here because I have a plan, and the plan is to drink the cup that the Father has given me. Now, I don't know what Peter was thinking. Uh, he whips out a sword. And it's really funny because none of his mates are going to you know, back him up. <laughs> they haven't got his six. He whips out the sword and he chops up an ear. All the other disciples are like, yeah, whatever. And so he goes and Jesus says, look, Peter, put it away. What are you going to do? Fight all of these soldiers? And what if, what, even if you could win, what are you going to do? Fight the whole Roman Empire? No, put it away because that's not my plan. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink? the cup the Father has given me. I have a plan. God has a plan. I'm going to get arrested. 
I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath. I'm going to be put onto a cross for you, Peter, and for the world. Jesus is in total control, even at the end game, even when he's being arrested. And this really should have given his disciples great confidence to get through the next three days without him. But it didn't. Why? Because a while ago Jesus said, in a little while you won't see me and you'll mourn. And a little while after that you will see me and you'll rejoice. What Jesus predicted, what Jesus planned, came to fruition. It should have given them confidence, but it didn't. But it should give us confidence 2,000 years later that at all points in Jesus' life, he was in control, even at the end. And it should give us confidence in this world that Jesus is in control of our lives as well and our community, even on the other side of the world here in Sydney. See, when I was growing up, Christianity was a nice little thing that was irrelevant. But now increasingly, Christianity is a thing to be despised. We're not just the irrelevant nice guys. We're the haters. We're the unpolitically correct. We're the ones who read the same Bible as Israel Folau. Whatever your position is on how he did things, at the end of the day, he's quoting the Bible. And we're painted with the same brush as him. We're not the irrelevant nice guys. We're the bad guys. And sometimes it makes us shrink going into the world. Like we don't really want people to know that we're Christians in our workplaces and especially on the university campuses. Especially when there's big campaigns on by CBS or EU or CU or Credo and we sort of, the word's getting out there and we sort of feel, oh gosh, we're a little bit, I hope they don't talk to me about this stuff. But Jesus is in control of your campuses, of your workplaces. He was even in control in the garden when they came up to arrest him. So take confidence, be bold, continue to love and serve your community with the truth of Jesus. We don't need to be afraid. Jesus has our six. All right, <clears throat> the next thing we see is a reaction from the disciples. Uh, uh, ten of them scatter, and Peter also scatters, and there's, a, there's an environment of fear. And we see that in verses 15 through 27. Just to, to speed things up a little, it pretty much is Peter um, scatters with the, the other 11 disciples, and then they ask him three times if he actually knows Jesus. And three times he denies Jesus. He denies Jesus, he turns his back on Jesus. And on one level, that's kind of surprising because Peter was one of the 12. In fact, Peter was one of the three closer ones that went up to the transfiguration. In fact, Peter was kind of like the, school, the, the class captain of the disciples. And on top of that, Peter said to Jesus a little while ago, no matter what happens, Jesus, I'll be with you. I'll stay with you. I'll die for you, Jesus. He made that promise. And just a few moments ago, he whipped out a sword to defend Jesus. So it's kind of surprising that just minutes, hours later, he'd be denying Jesus. But on another level, it's not that surprising either, is it? Because when, Je- when Peter made those promises to be with Jesus, he actually told Peter, that's kind of nice of you, Peter, but you're going to abandon me. And in fact, before daybreak, before the rooster crows three times, you will have, den- you will have disowned me three times. What Jesus had said came to pass. Jesus continues to be in control. Now, Peter was scared, of course, of what the world would do to him, and therefore he denied Jesus. And I wonder sometimes when I read passages like this, what I would do in the same situation. What would you have done in Peter's position? 
I think I would like to think I'd be brave and stand up for Jesus and, and be arrested with Jesus and tortured and killed for Jesus. I'd like to think that. But if I was totally honest with you, I think I would have been exactly like Peter, just been really scared of what the world's going to do to me and run away. And when I got a bit of courage, I might shadow to see what, the, what they're doing to Jesus. I probably would have denied Jesus as well, like Peter did. And I'm guessing most of us would do the same thing. But fortunately for us, we're not in that situation right now. There are many Christians in the world where that is the case. But for us, we don't have that sort of confrontation, that sort of persecution in Sydney. So what are some of the ways that we might fear the world and disown Jesus? Well, I think the two main ways are with our words and with our life. With our words, sometimes when I'm walking around with school pickups and, and all those things, I sort of there's conversations about things like falau, things about gender fluidity, uh, things like even school scripture, which a lot of the parents in my school don't like. And I'm sort of sitting there thinking, oh, you know, please don't ask me my opinion, you know, I'll just let this one slide because I don't want to sort of mark myself out there as one of these Christians. And what if they ask me what I'm going to do for a living? Then I have to say, oh, I'm a church pastor. And I, and I think, but sometimes I think, well, Am I just denying Jesus by that? Shouldn't I be bold? Uh, shouldn't I say, look, you know, you're a parent, I'm a parent. Uh, you're a member of this university, I'm a member of this university. You work for this company, I work for this company. You've told me your views, and that's fair enough. I accept your views, and here's my view. I believe this, and it's because I'm a Christian. It's because I believe that's what God says. Now, I'm not going to pressure you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm just going to share with you my opinion because that's what I believe, and I believe Jesus is right. Should I speak like that into those conversations instead of just shrink back and effectively deny Jesus? Well, it's not just in our words sometimes. It's also with our lives as well. Think about what you want in life. The world is shouting out that we can have all this great stuff and we generally build our lives to get what the world's offering. And we, in fact, we fear missing out on what the world's offering. Right? What are your aspirations what do you do with your money? What do you do with your time? Where do you want to be in five years' time, 10 years' time, 20 years' time? Are those the things that God wants for you? Or are those the things the world is telling you you must have to be happy, to be successful? Do we fear missing out on what the world's offering us and in so doing in our lives and our choices deny Jesus functionally? You see, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow. The world screams out, you can have it all, and Jesus says, you can't. Choose. You're going to choose me or choose the world. If you choose me, it's going to cost. You can't have it all. In fact, earlier on in his ministry, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it? for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self, their very soul. You can't have it. You want the world, you'll end up dying. You give up your life for me, you'll find that you've saved it. And if you gain the world, what good is it to you if you forfeit your very soul? The world is screaming, you can have it all and just put Jesus on the side. Jesus says, choose, me or the world. Now, Jesus is not saying you can't have a career, you can't have a marriage, you can't have a car. He's not saying that at all, but he is saying all the blessings he pours out on us, we want to turn back into praise, into honouring him. We want to chase the glory of Jesus 
by using the stuff, not chase the stuff and have Jesus on the side. In fact, making Jesus help us get that stuff. There's no point in gaining the world if you lose your soul. Now, many years ago, in, uh, many years ago when I was young, um, we had a pastor visit our church. He was from mainland China. And he actually told us about the persecutions in his church, that the government sends spies into his church. And in fact, a lot of his small group leaders were in trouble with the law and in fact had been arrested. He himself had been in jail several times. He had, he'd been fined and he'd lost a lot of material stuff. And so the, the worship leader, the, the host, said to him, all oh, right, okay, thanks for sharing. Uh, we're going to pray for you now. Uh, what kind of things can we pray for? Of course, we'll pray that the persecution stops. And this pastor was like, huh? No, no, don't do that. And then the, the host was shocked. What, what do you mean, don't do that? Why don't you want us to pray that the persecution stops? And then the pastor, in the most matter-of-fact, in the most humble, in the most non-accusatory way, just said, why don't, you want, why don't I want the persecution to stop? Well, because we'll become like you. <laughs> and the whole hall, the whole church was like, what did he just say? Like you could hear a pin drop onto carpet at that point. Then as we thought about it, we thought, that guy's right. You see, he doesn't want the persecution to stop in his church because the persecution gives them perspective. The persecution keeps them frosty. It keeps them focused. They know they can't have it all. They're going to have to choose between Jesus and the world. They can't have the world and sort of tuck Jesus on the side. They've got to choose. And they know it doesn't profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul. And so his guys choose God. And in fact, he thought we were the ones in danger. You guys there, you got so much stuff. You, you get told you can have it all. You spend your time chasing after this, chasing after that, chasing after this, putting Jesus on the side. You're the ones who are in danger of gaining the whole world but losing your soul. You're the ones in danger of missing out on living a life that will glorify Jesus, that will count forever, and just living a mediocre life, praising Jesus little bits and pieces here and there. And he didn't want that life for his church members. You can't have it all. You've got to choose. Do we fear God? Do we fear missing out on God's life for us? Or do we fear missing out on what the world's offering us? Well, the story moves on. And the last section of the story is found in verses 28 to 40. And it's about how the religious people reacted to Jesus. Come with me to verse 28. It says this, The Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of a Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Okay, see these guys, these guys, these Jewish leaders, when we read the Bible, we often think of them as the bad guys. And that's just because we've been at church for a while and they sort of are painted in a bad way. But in fact... If you were a first century person reading this, this letter, if you were actually one of Jesus' followers, the, the Jewish leaders were the good guys. They're the ones entrusted with the word of God. They're the ones entrusted to lead and to teach the people of God. They've done it for decades, centuries, all through the Old Testament. These are the good guys. But look at how they use their power or they misuse their power. They corner Jesus into a garden and then they rush him to a court that's chaired by a guy called Annas, who's not even the high priest. They have no witnesses. 
And Jesus says, hey, Lord, why don't you call in some witnesses? They'll tell you. They're breaking the law. They're breaking their own law by not having witnesses. And then they slap him in the head. And, that, and they're not allowed to do this according to their own law. And then they rush him along to Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, you deal with him. And Pilate says, what's, what's he done? And they don't even give him an answer. Oh, you know, we wouldn't bring him here unless he was a criminal. Just trust us on this. Go with this. And Pilate goes, no, you deal with him with your own laws. And then, the, and, then, and then they say, well, they play their card. They say, no, because we won't do that because we can't execute him. They played their card. They're not interested in finding out the truth about Jesus. They're not interested in justice or giving him a fair trial. They just want him executed as quickly as possible. And even then, Jesus is in control. Because if they got to kill him, they would have stoned him. But all through Jesus' life, he said he's going to be lifted high and die on the cross. He'd be executed by the Roman system, not the Jewish system. See, these good leaders of the Jewish people, they just abandon the law of God. They just abandon God himself, and they kill God. They kill Jesus, the one who gave them the law in the first place. And look at what they did. The hypocrisy is stunning because they didn't enter into Pilate's palace. Why? Because they want to keep themselves clean for the Passover. They've just broken so many laws according to their own, own restrictions and laws, and now they want to keep themselves ceremonially clean to eat the Passover. And here they have the Passover lamb himself, and they want to ignore him. They want to sideline him. They want to kill him. The hypocrisy is stunning. And it's right that John shows us how wicked and hypocritical they are. And it's right that we see they're evil. But I think sometimes we're not all that different to them. You see, why are they doing this? Well, they're doing this because they're so enamored by religion. They're so enamored by their way of doing stuff, their churchy stuff. They've actually forgotten God. And when God turns up, they want to keep their religion so much, they're willing to kill God, have him executed. Now, I think we're not like that. But on the other hand, we do tend to have similar tendencies at times. We tend to come to church and be somewhat of a connoisseur when we come to churches. Um, if you're visiting church tonight, it's one of your first few times, and welcome. It's fantastic that you're here. I'm glad you've made it to church after, I'm no doubt, staying up really late last night to watch Ash Barty win the French Open. Good on you for being here. Uh, but sometimes when you come to church or new church, you sort of think, oh, you know, what are the songs like? You know, what are the praying like? Uh, is, is, is soup going to be any good? Uh, is a guy giving a speech any good? And then these are interesting things to, to pay attention to. But let me encourage you to go deeper than that. Actually look at what the songs are trying to convey to you, the truths they're trying to say. Uh, listen, listen to what the Bible is saying. Listen to what I'm actually talking about in, in this talk. And get past just the front of church and actually to God. And try and understand who he is and what he's saying. So let me encourage you to do that. But if you are a regular, if you're a Christian, then I think we also sometimes get so enamored by church, we actually forget God. You see, one of the things that is most telling is, I think oftentimes we think more. We, we're more concerned about how we see each other. What other people at 7pm think of me than I am about than I am what God thinks of me. I come here to church, I've got my friends, we chat, we, we talk to each other, we might even pray for each other, it's fantastic, it's lovely, ha ha ha, it's good. Hey, see you next week. We've done our bit, and now for the rest of the week, we act like anyone else, with little smatterings of God may be. But God is at church. 
and God is with us for the rest of the week. We need to just get away from just a good reputation amongst our peers and actually think, I want to, I want to be good with God as well. Be Christian not for one and a half hours on a Sunday or two hours on a Wednesday night at small group, but actually be with God, walking with him, not forgetting him all the days of the week and all the days of our lives. Let's not be the ones who just want to look good in front of others and not care about what God thinks of us. But I think another way we actually a bit of connoisseurs, actually, we're more enamored by church than God, is when we finish a church service. We say, oh, how was church? And you say, yeah, it was okay, you know. Um, songs are all right, but, you know, third song, second song was a bit slow. Uh, the, the singer was a bit flat. Um, oh, the prayer, you know, the guy sort of rabbited on a bit, and, and I sort of, yeah, was, got lost in language. And, you know, that preacher guy, you know, he just told a few funny jokes, funny, but, you know, he didn't really speak to me. I didn't get anything out of the sermon. Uh, I mean, we can say that sort of thing. Uh, but I was taught by my pastor when I was young, it's the job of the, the, the worship and song team to teach us God's word through song. It's the job of the prayer to actually lead us in the faithful prayer. It's the job of the teacher to actually teach faithfully from the word. That's their job. But it's my job in the pew to actually come and learn. Learn from them and learn about God. I'm not here to be connoisseur. I'm here to actually learn, not just be taught. And that's good advice, isn't it? You see, sometimes we see ourselves as an audience at church. We come here, we watch a show that lasts for about an hour and 15, hour and a half, and that's it. When in fact, that's not what the church is. We've already heard tonight, haven't we? We are the church. We're not an audience. We're a family. We're a body. We serve each other, and we care for each other, and we look after other people who join our community. That's what we do. Now, we might not do it from the front, but we can all do it wherever we are. So let me encourage you, come to church expecting to serve. Come to church for a start, because if you're not here, you're not serving the rest of us, and we miss you. So I've got to be there. I'm going to be to serve. Sometimes up front, sometimes in the pew, it doesn't matter. I'm here to serve. I'm here to be a part of this family. Come. But on top of that, when you come here, if you've got a job to do, do it and do it well. But if you don't, then come thinking, wow, I'm going to, where am I going to sit tonight? Am I going to sit in the same seat that I sat in the last week and the week before that and the week before that? Or am I going to sit next to the person who I saw was a bit sad last week and might need a bit of cheering up, a little bit of a talk, a little bit of a prayer? Am I, going to speak, am I going to sit next to the person who I've noticed is kind of on the fringe at church and I'm sort of going to bring them into the centre? Am I going to sit next to the person who's new so I can actually sort of bring them into church and make them feel welcome? Am I going to do that? And on small group nights, am I just going to small group, expecting my small group leader to put on a show for me and impact me with God's word? Or am I actually going to go there, having read the passage, ready to learn? And when I get there, am I going to be there to talk to people, listen to people, pray with people on the small group night and also during the week and check up on them? Am I going to be doing that? Because that's what we are. We're a family. We're a body. We serve each other. We're not an audience. So come to church. Come to this gathering, expecting to serve. You see, oftentimes, and it's a danger for those of us who've been at church for a while, we come to church each week and we go to small group and we kind of just come and we get our little fill of milk or water and we just keep drinking this stuff from Peppa Pig um, drink bottle <laughs> when in fact we should be eating meat 
I mean, we're going to be eating a bit of meat in this soup, but that's not what I mean. We should be actually eating meat, the solid food, growing in our understanding of God, growing in our relationship with God, and using that to serve other people. In another church, which is quite similar, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says this, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. These guys just went to church, went to church, got fed milk, got fed water from Peppa Pig, and that's all they did. And years and years later, they were still infants in Jesus. When they should have grown, they should have been teaching, they should have been serving. Let that be 7 p.m. Come, grow, learn, and serve. Each other, serve God. You're not an audience. You're a family. You're a body. And we serve together. All right, well, we've seen quite a few things this week, haven't we? We've seen that Jesus was in control all the time, even at his demise, even at the, at the arrest, and so we can take confidence in him being in control now. We've seen that Peter and the disciples feared the world and therefore denied Jesus. There'll be forgiveness later, but for now they've denied Jesus. Let us not be the ones who fear the world or fear missing out on what the world's going to offer us and deny Jesus. In our words but also functionally with our lives. And we've seen that some people were so enamored with their religion, they forgot about God. Let us be the people who actually love God and everything else that sort of fits in and adds to our understanding of God as we love him and serve him. Amen.